just over a month ago, something happened in Lebanon, in the Middle Eastern city of Beirut. It was something shocking even for this year, in which the unexpected seems to happen every day. It was one of the largest man-made non-nuclear explosions in human history. It was caused by a stockpile of ammonium nitrate that had just sat neglected at the port for six years. I mean, it was horrible because you don't know, I mean, you know you're alive, but it's so surreal. The shock is, is so, so unexpected. This is Julie Tejo Bunasif. She's Lebanese and a high school social studies teacher. She and her husband, Hisham, were less than a mile from the explosion's epicenter. They were at the mall when it happened. I felt for a second that the mall was basically collapsing on our heads because the sound of the bomb was so strong and deafening also that you... you could, it, it, like it, it took us a couple of seconds to, to realize that we had to actually leave the mall because you're under such tremendous shock and uh, people are screaming next to you. Julie and Hisham were actually on different levels of the mall when the explosion happened. The blast knocked out the cellular network. And as the building erupted into chaos, it was hard for them to find each other. All I could think of all this time was, where's my husband? Where's my husband? I need to find my husband. My husband is on the third floor. Um, that was a priority. So for the next 10 minutes, that's the only, the only thing I cared, I cared about. Julie feared the worst, and she started to make her way up to the third floor. That's when I saw Hisham coming out, uh, bleeding, but uh, he was alive and he was fine and bleeding from his forehead. The couple started walking through the streets to Julie's parents' house, which was nearby. And it's only when we started walking that I started grasping the magnitude of the, the blast. And we realized that it's not just a car bombing, it's something much bigger. And you could see people's face, they were completely startled. They, like you, it was just a post-apocalyptic scene. Just glasses everywhere. People were just like looking into, like they, you could, they couldn't understand what was going on. They made it to the house and they got Hisham first aid and they took him to the hospital. And thankfully now he's fine. Their home was a little bit further from the blast. Their house suffered only the loss of its windows, which were all completely blown out. Julie's sister was babysitting at the time and she was able to shield Julie and Hisham's baby from that flying glass. Lebanon's civil war, which claimed some 100,000 lives, took place between 1975 and 1990. There were a lot of bombings during that time. But since the end of the war, Lebanon has been relatively peaceful and prosperous. The August explosion is certainly the worst disaster that most younger Lebanese people can remember. I was too young when the, when the civil war ended, so I didn't live through that type of or something similar, except some, you know, car bombings um, between 2005 and 2009, but nothing of that magnitude. People are still mourning, people are still grieving. Julie and Hisham are helping to raise money to get shelter and basic necessities to people whose homes have been destroyed. 
They're working with the Philos Project, a group that advocates for religious pluralism in the Middle East. Other than the houses, I mean, you need to make sure that, um, so there's food, food aid coming in, there's also medication. But at this point, I mean, making sure that you don't have 300,000 homeless Beirutis on the, on the, on the streets, that speaks, uh, you know, a lot about the urgent need to rebuild the homes. And this is where volunteers have been doing most of the work because, you know, there has been no government involved in that. And, uh, you know, helping to remove the debris, uh, making sure people who have lost everything have places to go to, whether it's the church, whether it's friends, family, etc. But uh, it's still too soon uh, for those houses to be rebuilt. And this is where our work is coming in as volunteers. As you'd expect, businesses, schools, and churches are also in serious need of help. Like my school, for example, is completely destroyed. The doors, the windows, it's heavy material damage, but I mean, it could have been worse if there were kids at school, you know, so. Lebanon is home to one of the oldest Christian communities in the entire world. The country is mentioned at least 70 times in the Bible, and According to the Gospels, Jesus himself visited Lebanon at least once. But in the years since the Lebanese Civil War ended, the Christians in Lebanon have faced a lot of challenges. And the August explosion was, in some ways, a very difficult last straw. This week on the show, we've already brought you a taste of what it was like to be in Beirut when the explosion happened, and what Lebanese Christians and Christians around the world are doing to help. Next, our producer, Jonah McKeown, will bring you a little deeper into the current geopolitics of Lebanon and talk about what might happen to the country after this disaster. And in our third segment, we'll tell you the story of an amazing Lebanese saint, Saint Charbel. Stay with us. The August 4th explosion couldn't have come at a worse time for Lebanon. The human toll, of course, was catastrophic. But in addition to that, the disaster has exacerbated financial mismanagement in the country that was already threatening to pull Lebanon into financial ruin. The August 4th blast is really the icing on a cake of misery for the Lebanese. This is Habib Malik a Lebanese professor and scholar. He was at home, only a couple miles from the port, when the explosion happened. The blast was terrifying in terms of the noise. I thought something had blown up at my neighbor's house. Now, Habib is helping to coordinate humanitarian efforts to rebuild the city. Lebanon is reeling and in very bad shape. If you've never closely studied the Middle East, or if you haven't been paying the closest of attention to the news, don't feel too bad. It's complicated. But here are some things you should know about Lebanon. First, it's one of the only countries left in the Middle East where Christians are able to live in relative peace. Christianity has been around in Lebanon almost since the very beginning. Lebanon itself is mentioned in the Bible dozens of times. Islam came along much later. Today, Lebanon, which sits on the Mediterranean and shares borders with Syria and Israel, is about two-thirds Muslim and one-third Christian. Of the Muslims in Lebanon, they're split about half and half between Sunni and Shiite Muslims. 
Just briefly, in case you don't know, the dividing line between Sunnis and Shias has to do with the difference in beliefs about the Prophet Muhammad's line of succession, which in Islam is quite significant. Overall, most of the world's Muslims are Sunni, but Shiites dominate in some areas, such as in Iran. More on that later. Of the Christians in Lebanon, almost all of them are Maronite Catholics. But despite the religious pluralism in Lebanon, there certainly are problems, and one of the biggest threats to Christians since the end of the Civil War has been Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shiite political party in Lebanon, but many countries in the rest of the world consider them a terrorist group. Since their founding in the mid-1980s, Hezbollah has been steadily gaining power in the country. Hezbollah is also good friends with Iran and receives some $700 million a year from the predominantly Shiite country. Thanks to widespread corruption, barely a penny of that ever makes it to the Lebanese people. As we mentioned before, Lebanon was in financial crisis even before the pandemic, let alone the explosion. The government had been borrowing huge amounts from local banks to cover the national debt, which is one of the highest in the world, luring in ordinary people to deposit their savings with the promise of high interest rates. Thousands of protesters rallied against the government yesterday. The tensions boiled over in October 2019, when thousands of Lebanese took to the streets to protest the country's crushing debt and high unemployment. At the time, even Pope Francis took notice and sent his well wishes to the protesters. The coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent worldwide economic crisis has compounded the country's problems. And to make matters even worse, the Syrian civil war, taking place since 2011 right next door to Lebanon, has led to an influx of some one and a half million refugees, a substantial financial burden for any nation, especially one as small as Lebanon. And now, with the destruction of the port, Lebanon's ability to import even basic necessities like food has been severely diminished. Enter China. China has been cozying up to Lebanon's leaders for a while now, offering aid and investment in things like electrical infrastructure and transportation. They even sent along thousands of testing kits when the coronavirus pandemic hit. But Habib and many other observers are extremely wary of China's offers to help. First of all, they are not transparent. They don't tell you their real motives. In fact, their official statements deny that they have any interest in getting embroiled in a place like Lebanon or the Middle East. But we know how they act. They act uh, stealthily and they act incrementally. All throughout the world, China has been investing billions of dollars in infrastructure projects in recent years as part of what it calls the New Silk Road. China will tell you that their investments don't come with political strings attached, but don't be too sure about that. Lebanon is of strategic importance to China because of its deepwater seaport, which would open up a whole new set of shipping routes for China in the Mediterranean. Here's an interesting side note to consider. China and Iran have drafted a long-term trade and military partnership that will see some $400 billion of Chinese investments pour into Iran in the first phase of the 25-year deal. It is China's relationship with Iran, which is a Muslim confessional state, 
is pretty weird when you consider what's going on in China right now. The Chinese government in Beijing continues its efforts to force the ethnic minority group to give up their culture and their faith. As we speak, the Chinese government is holding at least a million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. There have been widespread reports of forced sterilizations and abortions, forced organ harvesting, political indoctrination, and torture. Many are decrying China's actions as a genocide. The Chinese government's uh, treatment of the Uyghurs is a stain on their century. My understanding is that the Uyghurs are mostly Sunnis, if I'm not mistaken. Now, that may go some way in explaining, um, you know, the partnership with Iran and, and Hezbollah, meaning that they would overlook some of these uh, persecutions uh, because of the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the, the Sunni-Shiite divide. Beyond that, Iran's partnership with China seems to be one of opportunity, a powerful ally for Iran and access to vast energy reserves for China. In addition to that... They both uh, have a common enemy, and that's the United States. Hassan Nasrallah, chairman of the Hezbollah party, said in a recent interview before the explosion happened that Lebanon should accept aid from China rather than from the U.S. There's even talk of China being willing to inject hundreds of billions of dollars in investment into the stricken country. Now, what can the Chinese do? Well, they, they'll have if they put their foot here, they'll have a lot of leverage with time. They'll 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 be players if they if they're allowed to get in here. And there's no telling how this will eventually uh, impact religious freedom. Certainly, in a way, Habib says, the explosion is actually playing into Hezbollah's interests. Further neglect of Lebanon actually directly undermines Western interests in the Arab Levant and in the Arab Middle East because the Iran axis represented here locally by Hezbollah it is in their interest that Lebanon collapse, that the people become destitute and become completely desperate so that then China could step in and throw us a lifeline of a few billion dollars, which the Lebanese, the exhausted Lebanese at that point, would have no choice but to accept. China's record on human rights and religious liberty within its own borders is appalling, to say the least. Christians are being persecuted mightily in China right now, and China is, as we speak, exerting its influence on Hong Kong to squash freedom of speech and religion there, too. In light of this, it's hard to see how increased Chinese influence in Lebanon can possibly bode well for religious freedom in the country. This is a very high-stakes game, I'm, I'm afraid. In the wake of the explosion, aid and prayers poured in from around the world. Most of the neighborhoods destroyed in the explosion were majority Christian. Many of the same young people that took to the streets to protest last October are the same ones now working hard to help their neighbors get shelter and food. The last thing um, Lebanon now needs is money or aid coming through official government channels or through the political parties. They are all the crooks that have looted Lebanon and the Lebanese over the past 30 years under the full protection of Hezbollah. And so uh, that would be tantamount to putting the fox in the chicken coop. 
Instead, he said people of goodwill should send money to NGOs active in the country and to the Maronite Catholic Church. Habib said although the church is doing a lot to help survivors, the churches, both Catholic and Orthodox, themselves are in great need since their buildings have been so badly damaged. The church is very much in need of aid and also the Orthodox Church because the uh, the Orthodox bishopric of Beirut uh, is directly facing um, the port. And we have a number of Orthodox cathedrals, very uh, uh, beautiful and some of them old ones, that have been very badly hit. So what will happen next in Lebanon? Habib says this will all depend on whether Western governments can step up to help, so that Lebanon doesn't have to resort to taking aid from Iran or China. Keeping in mind what's at stake both on the humanitarian level, but beyond that, on the strategic level, I don't think ignoring Lebanon anymore should be an option. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. For more than 100 years, pilgrims, both Christian and Muslim, have flocked to the shrine of St. Charbel in Lebanon, looking for miraculous healing. But one pilgrim to the shrine got more than he bargained for. That story right after this. This is Michelle LaRosa, Deputy Editor-in-Chief at CNA. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I work for Catholic News Agency. But I have certainly not exhausted the richness of the Catholic faith. I like CNA Newsroom because it allows me to continue learning new things about the Catholic world, from inspiring stories of modern-day saints, to a look at where the Palm Sunday palms come from, to the ethical considerations surrounding vegetarianism. There's always something new to learn, something interesting to reflect on and discuss. If you're interested in learning more about the Catholic world from all kinds of different perspectives, CNA Newsroom is the podcast for you. Subscribe to CNA Newsroom on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Each episode will be delivered straight to your phone. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Now, back to the episode. Beirut is a very diverse city, and interestingly, it's almost evenly split in terms of Christians and Muslims who live there. And there's this one saint who is really popular with both Christians and Muslims in Lebanon. He's often a kind of peaceful cultural link between communities. After the explosion, as horrible pictures and news reports rolled in, we heard about Lebanese people, Christian and Muslim, who were imploring the intercession of that Lebanese saint. St. Charbel. He's a 19th century priest and a monk. Thousands of people over the years believe they have been healed through St. Charbel's intercession. But we spoke with one man whose mystical experience with St. Charbel was a little bit more unusual even than that. Here's our Rome correspondent, Hannah Brockhaus, who traveled to Lebanon in December of 2018. I met Raymond Nader at his office in the Christian heart of Lebanon, the Kesarwan district, just northeast of Beirut. The district's inhabitants are more than 90% Maronite Catholic, the religion of most Christians in Lebanon. 
As a child, Raymond was fascinated by the Mass, especially since his grandfather was a Maronite Catholic priest. Raymond had a scientific mind, so as he got older, he decided to study nuclear engineering in college, first in Beirut and then in London. Around the same time, Raymond joined the Christian army as part of the Lebanese Civil War, which began in 1975 and lasted for 15 long years. Witnessing the death and destruction of the war troubled him deeply. So I kept asking the same question, what is the meaning of life since it will end by dying? And I was always asking about uh, Jesus Christ, the Incarnation, the, the Eucharist, our faith. I was a believer, but not so firm believer, because I wanted to believe in my head instead of my heart. So I was searching through science about God, the meaning of life, the universe. Between the years of 1985 and 1994, Raymond would go daily to the shrine of St. Charbel, seeking a peaceful place to pray. St. Charbel was a Maronite priest and hermit whose shrine was, then, already widely known as a place where people, both Christian and Muslim, could go in search of miraculous healings. The shrine consists of the former monastery and nearby hermitage where St. Charbel lived out his last days and is located in Anaya, an hour north of Beirut, in the hills nine miles inland from the coast. I go up to Anaya to pray, to meditate, to, to think, to search, to study, and all these things. But one night at the monastery, in 1994, something happened that changed Raymond's life. It was on November 10th, 1994. So while I was praying, something in the atmosphere started changing around me. It was so cold, you know, Anaya is 1,300 meters above sea level. It's so cold during winter. So suddenly, I felt a warm breeze surrounding me, and then that was transformed into a strong, hot wind blowing everywhere. He says everything in the room seemed to be moved by the breeze, except the flames of the candles, which he describes as looking frozen, like small light bulbs. So I thought that I was hallucinating. And I started looking for the cause of this uh, hot wind in Anaya during winter time, which is a miracle. And uh, I was shocked to see the flames not moving in spite of the hot and strong wind. He says he reached out to touch one of the unmoving candle flames, and suddenly... I felt that I was transported in another world. So all my senses stopped. I couldn't feel my body anymore. I stopped hearing any noise, any, any voice. Everything stopped. I couldn't feel my body. I didn't feel if I am standing or kneeling or feeling hot or feeling cold. And I found myself in, in a huge, powerful light. I name it light, but it's not a light because it's, it's so strong. It's billions of times stronger than the sun, but it's a different light. It has no heat and it didn't, didn't hurt the eyes. It's so powerful, so strong, but so smooth at the same time. It was so clear, like the crystal. It has no color. And I felt a presence. I felt the presence of a being. And I started talking to myself. I said, maybe I'm dreaming. So he said to me, no, you're not dreaming. 
I didn't see him, I didn't, didn't know him. But I received this answer, no, you're not dreaming, but in a very special way, so without words, without any language, without a voice, but was so clear. He said, you're not dreaming. So I said to myself, maybe I'm not conscious now. So he said again, it's the same way, now you are conscious. You have never been as conscious as you are now. And in the same way, without, without words, without a voice, without any language, but so clear. Raymond was understandably confused, but as he questioned in his mind what was going on, he says that in some strange way, without speaking, the presence revealed itself. It was a feeling of uh, joy, happiness, peace, uh, strength, love, tenderness. Raymond was transfixed by the feeling. So I said to myself that I don't want anything now. All of that I want is to stay as I am, with this feeling and with this presence. So he said to me that, and I was saying to myself inside my heart, I said, I was saying that I want to ask him not to go, and if he wants to go, to take me with him. So he answered me, he said that I'm always everywhere. And with that, Raymond says everything ended, and the monastery was once again dark and cold. He looked at his watch. It was after 3.30 in the morning. It seemed that four hours had passed in what felt like an instant. And when I was going back to my car, I was walking back to my car, which was near the monastery, I felt something on my arm, my left arm. What Raymond saw on his upper arm appeared to be the imprint of five fingers marked in the flesh of his arm, oozing blood and water. Over the next few years, a plastic surgeon examined the mark several times and pronounced it to be a severe third-degree burn. And yet, since that moment in 1994, Raymond says the handprint has disappeared and reappeared several times, without leaving any kind of scar and without causing him pain. So I was shocked again and didn't know what, well, what's happening. So all the nuclear engineering that I've in my head, I felt that they cannot serve anymore. Today, Raymond, a husband and father of three, is president of the Liban Message Movement, which works to promote and protect Lebanese values, and the executive director of the Middle Eastern Catholic television station, Norsat TV. He also spends months out of every year traveling around the world to share his testimony. And this experience is repeated once or twice a year. I, I go through the same experience, I see the light, and uh, I feel the same feeling, and I feel like I'm getting in touch with this beautiful being. And this deeply changed everything in my life. Before we go further, a little bit about Saint Charbel. He was born Yusuf Antun Makluf to a humble Lebanese family in 1828, the youngest of five children. As a boy, he spent a great deal of time outdoors in the fields and pastures near his village, contemplating God amid the inspiring views of Lebanon's valleys and mountains. His family wanted him to get married, but the young man had other ideas. He trekked on foot to the monastery of St. Marin, where he took his monastic vows in 1853. After studying for the priesthood, he was ordained and returned to the monastery where he would humbly serve for the next 19 years. He showed great devotion to the life of prayer, 
manual work, and contemplative silence. In 1875, he was granted permission to live in solitude at a nearby hermitage. He spent the next 23 years there, until his death. Saint Charbel was deeply devoted to God's presence in the Eucharist. On December 16, 1898, Charbel suffered a stroke while celebrating the Maronite Divine Liturgy. He died on Christmas Eve of that year, and Saint Pope Paul VI canonized him in 1977. So, why the mark on Raymond's arm? Well. Raymond says he suspects it is because God knew that Raymond, with his scientific and analytical mind, would need a tangible sign from St. Charbel to believe that his experience was real, and that he would need something tangible to show others. St. Charbel doesn't want to show that I am powerful. The aim of St. Charbel is to, to point to God, to show people God, that God is here, and to, to, to shake people, and to tell them that you have to, to change your lifestyle. Raymond says his mystical experiences have taught him the importance of love and of living life with purpose. So the first thing that I ask them to do, start thinking about the meaning of your life. Why are you here? What are you doing? And what is the purpose of all what you do? You are investing in this life. Okay, you study, you get married, you get children, you have uh, a lot of investments, a lot of projects, and everything will end when you will die. So what are you doing? And why are you doing all these things? Without any meaning, just start thinking and searching and looking for the meaning of your life. You're not here by chance. When you will die, this will not be the end. It will be a new start in a new life. So start looking for it. The second thing is that I try to convince people that love should prevail. There is no need for, uh, for uh, hate for uh, conflicts. Let's start working on love. Let's love each other and live peacefully with each other, especially in here in Lebanon, with, with, with the Muslims, with, with, the, with the people who are not Christians, and even among Christians. About four million people visit St. Charbel's shrine every year, and it's not just Christians. Many Muslims come too seeking the miraculous cures that for years have been granted to pilgrims of both religions. The monastery of St. Maron of Annaya, uh, the monastery was built in 1828, the same year St. Charbel was born. I spoke to Father Louis Matar, the shrine's coordinator. Here he is speaking with the help of a translator. He died uh, on the night of uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, he has uh, reborn in, uh, in heaven when the uh, King of Heaven is uh, born as a human. Since 1950, when St. Charbel's tomb was first opened, the shrine has archived some 29,000 medically verified healings. 1950 was a like a great year in the history of St. Charbel's miracle because uh, that year they opened the tomb and uh, when they opened the tomb, 8,000 miracles happened at a time. It's not that the miracles recorded before 1950 weren't credible either. It's just that before 1950, the miracles needed only the word of a priest to be considered valid. After that point, they started asking doctors to verify the healings medically. 
Many of these healings have been received by Muslims. So St. Charbel has no geographical limits or com confessional limits and he has nothing impossible and when people ask uh, he answers uh, so we got uh, 29,000 miracles and uh, 4 million visitors every year to the monastery. In Lebanon, we have been passing through difficult times since 622, in 14th centuries, in coexisting with, with the Muslims. Some periods were peaceful periods, some others were so bloody period, it was a lot of war. And now the war ended uh, 28 years ago, but we went through 15 years of uh, fierce war between the Christians and Muslims. So our experience from this period of conflicts that we should work on finding common ground between Christians and Muslims. Raymond believes it is unlikely Christians and Muslims will ever fully convince each other in terms of beliefs. And although his home country of Lebanon has seen its fair share of militant Islam in the form of the Iran-backed Shiite political party and militant group Hezbollah, he thinks the country can, in many ways, serve as a model for peaceful coexistence between the two faiths. The Lebanese Muslims are different from all the Muslims in the world. They are so open-minded. They are so open-hearted. And mainly it's because of the coexistence, of the long coexistence between the Muslims and Christians. So they have adopted a lot of our values, the human rights, the right of a human being to have his own belief, so the Muslims in Lebanon are a, a sample of how we can coexist between Christians and Muslims. The most important thing is to go back to our values, the human values, as to, to show the importance of life, the importance of the human beings, how precious is the human being and how precious is life. When we start in this point, many problems will be resolved. Raymond also hopes his testimony and mystical experience of St. Charbel will encourage Christians to take their faith seriously. So the first thing that we have to do is to regain our faith, to be Christians, to live as Christians, to be witnesses for Christ, to live the Christian values, to know the Bible, to pray. And if we become, re-become real Christians, Witnessing for Christ, like the first church, everything will change. I feel that time is coming that we will regain our faith in Europe, in the States, in all the world, because uh, humanity now are searching for God. They need God, because they, they reach a point that science will not give them solution for their problems. And I feel that the next century, this century, will be a century of coming back to God. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Hannah Brockhouse.
That's it for this week's episode of CNA Newsroom. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and we're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Kate Oliveira is on maternity leave, everybody, so say a prayer for her and for her family. Special thanks this week to everyone we spoke to in Lebanon and to Hannah Brockhouse, who conducted the interview with Raymond Nader and recorded the clips from the Maronite liturgies in Lebanon. Please continue to pray for Lebanon as it recovers. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Take care, everybody. Next time on CNA Newsroom. There is no place on earth as complicated as as Iraq. No place. The Christians of Iraq are amongst the oldest Christians on earth. Their faith was violently attacked by people who wanted to remove all trace of it. To say it clearly and loudly, Christians have been persecuted. Wherever the church is being persecuted, that means Christ himself is being persecuted. So if Christians don't care about that or shrug that off, I think we have to really ask ourselves, are we really Christians? Subscribe and listen to CNA Newsroom wherever you get your podcasts.